Welcome to Montana 3000, Tales of 15 Minutes from Now, read by the author, Sean Gallagher. Subscribe to this podcast wherever you get your favorite podcasts and see the website for updates on new episodes at montana3000.com. And now, your host, Sean Gallagher. I sit in the lobby. I sit in the lobby of a once opulent playground. I used to come here in the before. Lived right around the corner, in fact. I'd ride bikes over with my wife and kids. We'd spend weekend days lunching and swimming in the resort's massive network of interconnected pools. Waterfalls, water slides, grottos, the whole shebang. Sometimes we'd get a room and stay overnight. In the parlance of the time, what was called a staycation. Very clever, very indulgent. An alien concept in this, the new reel, the after. The venue still stands, though the pools are long gone, commandeered by quarantine officials for use as mass graves during the sickness. Defunct outcroppings of plaster stone abut cement footprints, pool-shaped, like a detective's chalk outline, the only demarcations now of the swimming hole's former trace. I'm told the youngish anymore use the flat surfaces for springtime bonfires and dances, but I take it at word. I know a few people under that concrete, and I glean no pleasure from dancing atop it. Nature has reclaimed the sprawling grounds. Some folks scrounge the now wild footpaths and desiccated fairways in search of rabbits, lizards, snakes. Fresh meat is nice, but I limit my foraging to cans, vacuum packs, and jars. Call me lazy. Plus, if, like me, you have a memory for what was here before, seeing what's here now only serves to stir up thoughts best left unstirred. I wander no further than the lobby these days. In its glory, the lobby was two stories tall of sunlit crystal, cashmere, marble, music, fountains, flowers, and art. No price too high to deliver the experience of ultimate luxury. Richly polished woods, exotic weaves, fashions of the moment abounded, and everywhere rang the silent screams of understated affluence. North and south walls of floor-to-ceiling glass, the former facing crags of the desert mountain against which this place was built, the latter facing out and down to the pools, the golf course beyond, and the shimmering city oasis yet beyond. Dotted across the foyer's vast carpeted landscape was a panoply of deep sofas, chairs, and low-slung tables, loosely hemmed in intimate clusters by verdant perimeters of potted palms and ferns, perfect for barely seen and never overheard tete-a-tetes. Offset in the southwest quadrant was the lobby's crown jewel, a circular bar sunken three steps deep from the main floor, its surface of translucent stone underlit and ethereally aglow. Clear and amber potables of all variety here served, along with a list of gooey blender drinks, long as your arm, all meant to set mind and tongue to buzz. The lobby looks quite different now. What's gone? But for the highest hung, most of the art, flammables, including every wood panel, sheet of paper, menu, magazine, napkin, pencil, side table, book, manual, curtain, carving, coffee cup, combustible object day art, 
You get it. Those springtime bonfires are hungry affairs. All lamps, table and floor. Every drop of juice, booze, water, and beer. Cutlery, glasses, plates and platters. Electronics, televisions, phones, computers, cash registers, printers, the like. What remains? The hotel's formerly iconic, now dust-drenched, cut-glass chandelier. Most sofas and chairs, though the illusion of viridescent intimacy has departed upon death by disregard of many a palm and fern. Only a smattering of unkillables persist, limp drooping in their chipped and paint-faded pots. Remnants from the wide meadow of once-rich carpet, now threadbare and intermittently moistened by spillage and neglect. This place is tired, true, but it's not yet gone to sleep. A brief pause to laud humanity. One could hardly be blamed for thinking that given society's pre-sickness fascination with the scatological chaos, when something bad did actually happen, we'd all lose our minds and plunder and pillage our way to extinction. I gladly report this did not happen. Yes, there was some initial panic. Yes, a few windows were broken, a few stereos lifted. Yes, the occasional maiden did meet with unpleasantness at the tine's tip of the occasional rapist. But did civilization collapse? No. Did the cities burn? No. Did ruin reign? Emphatically, no. In truth, we all kept a pretty clear head. It helped that the sickness raged like wildfire, killing quickly and cleanly, leaving in its wake a still-functioning and largely automated world, capable of providing a but only lessened level of convenience to a now much smaller contingent, the immune remainder. We didn't run out of food, fuel, or water. We ran out of people. Back to the lobby. I doubt I'll ever tire of seeing human resourcefulness in action. Indeed, that candle burns brightest in the deepest dark. To wit, as the sickness petered and those of us left were reeling in the wake of what to do next with all this stuff, it occurred to seemingly everyone that the nicest of our new things ought to be repurposed to support the utilitarian needs of those rattling around in the after. Sensible sedans were swapped for sports cars, apartments for mansions, and staid coffee shops for opulent resort lobbies though none among us seem to have the energy or inclination to maintain the world's former grandeur. Turns out many enjoy sitting in splendor amongst the gradually flaking guilt and the slow-souring wine of the coming to pieces. I place myself firmly in that camp, as I lounge here now in my favored chair, with its favored vantage of a slow-moving assemblage ensconced in a space of decadent decline. There are two sitting apart at the bar. One knows in a book, the other gazing off with vacant stare, holding a fork above a tin of half-eaten ravioli, some thought having seemingly stalled him mid-bite. Another, in a corner, plays checkers with herself. She thinks hard, makes a move, spins the board, repeat. Resources are abundant in this age, and commerce is all but dead. Some play the game still, though. Call it for old times' sake. There are three added over by the dry fountain, two in a bidding war for the third's something or other. Fistfuls of hundreds are animatedly waving about. The stakes are nothing. Across the room, against the wall and facing chairs over a table, two men are engaged in some seemingly friendly but intense dialogue. 
There is a familiarity to their gestures, suggesting old acquaintances and present reunion. My regard is aroused. Why notable, you ask? It's rare in this place that life from the before is re-met with life in the after. Everyone here, and I mean everyone, has lost their treasures. Whole networks wiped out. Parents, spouses, children, siblings, friends, lovers, acquaintances, familiar strangers. Three of every thousand survived. And while over time we, the remainder, managed to recluster into loose bands, as our kind is wont to do, a certain amount of space is maintained. Yes, we like to be around one another, but no longer together with each other. The lingering memory of so many severed connections, so much love lost, keeps the wounds raw. On one view, the most acute casualty of the sickness was not the lost lives of those departed, but the lost intimacy between those remaining. I wonder on these two, what topic could elicit such intensity between them? Passions in this time are widely muted. There's been too much loss. The tanks are dry. The future is a topic too unprecedented to engender heated emotion. The present is too disorienting to abide meaningful study. That leaves only the minefield of the past. Dangerous, but emotive. These men and their casual discard glimpse flash beyond the sofa. But where did? Stayed at home, armed and ready in May. I ventured a little in June, mostly for water. Thank God it didn't go to July. We were getting dry and thirsty, says the first man. We were lucky in that, agrees the second man. Surely in some dusty library, on some dusty campus, in some dusty college town, there's a dog-eared tome that explains the psychology that incites the immune to share their personal exploits from the eight-week chaos. The early, first, and only mass panic during the sickness. Maybe it's the low-hanging fruit of shared experience, like veterans talking boot camp, a never-fail icebreaker. Maybe it's survivor's guilt and the need to explain to any captive audience that there was nothing to be done. It came on so fast. Maybe it's just good old-fashioned catharsis, a story shared for the sake of the teller rather than the listener. Whatever human complexity undergirds the motivation, seems these days all conversations between any stranger come fellow well-met begins with a credential exchange of what you did during the eight. Thought we were well-prepared, but I didn't expect the ferocity. The second man speaks softly. Mm-hmm. The first nods and grunts in understanding. I was caught in public when it broke. Should have stayed in, of course, but I was so tired of the chatter by then. The hysteria seemed put on. I didn't trust the media. Their end-is-near rhetoric just wasn't playing for me. At least not that day. Mm-hmm. The first encourages. So, I decided to pop out for one more round of supplies. Always need water in the desert, right? I was walking into the grocery, almost to the door, when I see a lady walking out like casual. I wouldn't have even noticed her but for the fact that she wasn't wearing her vent gear. So she caught my eye. Then I noticed she had an ice pick sticking out of her throat, all the way to the hilt. Strangest of all, 
She was just walking along like everything was good. And then as she passes me, she gives me a thumbs up. Can you imagine? Bizarre. (laughs) You have no idea. And she walks for another 10 feet or so and collapses, face down onto the pavement. No hands out, nothing to break her fall, just bam, face first. And nothing. I was in shock. Stood there, trying to process, probably for a second, but it felt like a day. As I'm standing there, too scared to touch her, the shots start, and the whole store comes emptying out. I didn't know what was going on, but I knew it wasn't good. So I run like hell back to my car. I had a close spot. I was lucky. I jump in and pull out fast. I turned the wheel too hard, though, and hit the guy next to me. Scraping down the side of this truck, people are running around everywhere now, yelling, crying, shooting. It was like a fuse that everyone was waiting on. It had just been lit. Straw that broke the camel's back, whatever. Things just exploded in a moment. Mm Mm-hmm. So anyhow, I'm scraping down the side of this truck, pedal down, just trying to get out of there, and I hit something. Back right over it. Front tires, too. And I just keep going. Hit two or three more cars on the way out. I get out of the parking lot and blast towards home. The roads were already insane. People driving like maniacs, running lights, hitting each other. Our house is only a few blocks from the store, but I almost didn't get there. Someone tried to shoot out my tires at the intersection. Got one of them. I was running on a rim by the time I got home. Sparks flying everywhere. I didn't even look to see what I ran over. Just kept going to get out of there as fast as I could. For a long time, I told myself it was a dog. It wasn't a dog. I wonder on these two. What topic could elicit such intensity between them? Passions in this time are widely muted. There's been too much loss. The tanks are dry. The future is a topic too unprecedented to engender heated emotion. The present is too disorienting to abide meaningful study. That leaves only the minefield of the past. Dangerous. But emotive. These men in their casual discord... Glimpse. Flash behind the sofa. Where did... Something in my periphery distracts. A too small man drunkenly totters into the corner of a sofa, bumps against it, then stumbles behind it, just beyond my sight. That can't be right. Not that there aren't plenty of drunks around these days, but the proportions are off. The man is too small. The lack of logic affronts. I tear my attention away from the talking men in search of the stumbling drunk. Ha! This is no drunk. It's a child. A toddler, more specifically, of just learning to walk age, bumping itself around the room. If a monkey on horseback came through the lobby right now, it would be only slightly less strange. Far between are children in this time. Though many were immune... Few survived. Without parents, family, or friends, the dependent and unattended were made quick work of by death's blind and wide-swinging scythe. Tragic in the abstract, but in the trenches of the sickness. Unless it was your kid, meh. Like I said, 
the tanks ran dry. What makes this kid doubly strange is the fact that given its age, it's clearly a child of the after. Of course, we still have the technology to make babies. It's just that we largely don't. The flesh functions, but the heart and mind are barren. To quote a wise man, the thrill is gone. Also strange, a quick scan of the room suggests, beyond me, no one is taking any interest in this kid. By all appearances, it's stumbling and bumping around on its own. There was a time when triggers were everywhere. A sound, a smell, an otherwise benign object. Anything could trip the wire and set memory off in your face like a bomb. Nothing more dangerous than the implements of childhood. Parks, toys, colors, small things. It took next to nothing to flip the switch. God help you if you saw a picture of a child. Or worse yet, an actual child. Once ago, if this kid had wandered past me, I'd be wrapped around myself in a sobbing ball. But as I sit here now, seeing it teeter around, pacific and ill-protected, I feel... <sighs> beige. What's worse, I can't say. To be enwreathed by the catalysts of pain or to numbly subsist in a twilight of indifference. As it bangs and bumbles about, it occurs to me this kid is the unwitting agent of wisdom and an exemplar of a universal truth. If we don't look out for each other, we are all of us in existential peril. Used to be, together we formed interlocking webs. Now we free float like electrons, gently orbiting and slightly repelling one another. How in this lonely new world do we generate enough energy to care and connect? Someone must be looking for this kid. A more earnest attempt to locate its steward convinces me it's, impossibly, here by itself. Another peculiar effect of life in the after is that the extraordinary is now commonplace, and the impossible merely extraordinary. So while nature prohibits the absurdity of sowless cubs, like the one right in front of me, I'm less bothered by this paradox than you might expect. But I am starting to feel a clinical curiosity creep in, if for no other reason than it lets me dodge a little boredom in the interest of seeing what happens next. The kid is patient, if nothing else. It takes a few steps, falls down, gets up, a few more steps, bumps into something, falls down, gets up, immediately falls down again, gets up, etc. It's exhausting to watch, but impressive. The kid never loses its cool, just keeps falling and getting up, learning with each step and making slow but steady progress across the wide lobby floor. A decision point. Left, toward the sunken bar, or right, toward the open front entrance. Brief deliberation. What Tyro logic commands that blank slate? Then, right. Wobble, 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 almost to the door. Wobble, wobble, at the door. Wobble. Out the door. Roll me in flour and call me a biscuit if that kid didn't just pop out of nowhere, wander the lobby, and walk right out the front door, without anyone so much as looking at it. God bless the after. Hard-boiled cynic that I am, my inclination is to watch the kid go, reflect self-indulgently on the insanity of humankind, and go about my day. Curious and sentient ape that I am, Another inclination is to follow it out and watch the show. Maybe get the chance to be taught a lesson about danger at another's expense. But what's this? There's a third inclination. 
fomented in some deep recess, some dark corner of a long-past, far-ago life. The urge to protect his child, to help him. These are strange thoughts, but what can I do? The human pull is there, growing, in fact gaining life as I give it attention. What might happen if, rather than gawk or ignore, I engage? No, memory and pain scream back at me. Remember what happened last time. Yes, retorts some still, small voice. Risk and seek your reward. I'm immobilized by the debate. Every second I sit, the child wanders farther afield, toward who knows what lot. Some out-of-body urgency gives me my answer, enjoins me to stand, and commands me to follow, and save. So I do. Up from my battered chair, across the soiled space, past the broken and motley set, and in, to the out-of-doors. The End This has been another episode of Montana 3000. Check out the website for more information and additional stories. Montana3000.com If you like what you heard, please share it with your friends. Until next time, happy trails.